So from the Garden of Eden in Genesis, all the way to this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven in the end of the Bible in Revelation, from beginning to end, the Bible is one story. It is the story of God with one main character. His name is Jesus. And it's with one primary theme, which is redemption, for exactly one purpose, which is the absolute stunning display of the radiant glory of God. And this reality, this story of God creating the world and our place in it is what defines us, what gives us value and purpose, and it is the single defining reality of who we are and why we even exist. And we have been learning about this throughout the the summer in a series called Tapestry, where we're seeing how the Bible is God's interwoven masterpiece and how there are many different biblical threads that are woven into this fabric of the story of God. And so one of the threads that we'll be looking at today is the presence of God. God's plan has always been and always will be to live with, to dwell with a resurrected people who will treasure him and will enjoy his glory for eternity. This is where our lives are headed. This is the purpose of all things. This is why Jesus came and lived and died and was resurrected. And it's why we are here today, gathered together to, in a unique way, experience the presence of God, even as we do individually every day as believers. But as we jump into this theme of the presence of God and look at it from beginning to end in the Bible, in this series where we're talking about biblical theology and looking at these different themes, I think it's important for us to just kind of up front just admit something that, that oftentimes we will talk about things or use words that we don't really understand, but we use them anyway because they're common. So I'll give you an example. Like right now, we're in an election year, and politics are an all-time, you know, crescendo of frustration or excitement, depends on if you're a political junkie or not. But we, we hear words like caucuses, and we hear words like delegates and electoral college and primaries, and some of you are like, yeah, I kind of know what those things are but maybe you don't really fully comprehend how all of these things work or what these terms even mean. And for those of you that are into sports, I know football, you know, hopefully we'll actually get to play at some point later this year, but some of you love to watch football and love to track your, your, your quarterbacks, and so you talk about the QBR, and if you're here and you're like, what's a QBR? Well, I don't even know. Now, it stands for quarterback rating, and it's like this super complex like algorithm where the top score is not 100 as like a normal human would calculate things on like 1 to 100. No, a top score is 158.3. I don't know who comes up with this stuff. But we, we talk about, oh, my, my, my favorite QBR rating is 96.2, and it was like, 
How did you even calculate that? Do you even know like what that actually means? And it means that he's better than your guy. It's like, okay, but, but what does it actually mean? And how do you even calculate this QBR? Like no one knows. It's just this made up thing. And so we use words, I think, oftentimes, and I think in the church world, oh my goodness, like we use so many words, and we want to sound impressive, and we'll just drop words, and we don't even really know what they mean. And I think I've, I've heard too many times people talk about the presence of God on, let's bring the presence of God, or enter into the presence of God, or all kinds of ways that we use this language, and oftentimes it's not biblical, it's, or it's close, but it's not exact, and it's confusing, and so I'm praying that we'll have clarity. I'm praying that today that we'll understand what it actually means to be in the presence of God, and that it's far more than just a feeling. It is a reality that, that defines who we are, and it, it is a theme that unites the Bible itself from beginning to end. And so as we think about this, I'm, I want to give you two truths, and then towards the end, we will look at how to respond. And so we'll have three points. We, we, we are a normal church. You have three points anyway. Um, but I'll, I'll give you two truths and then some application thoughts at the end. So I'm going to give you the first one. So truth one about the presence of God from the word. Truth one is that we, ha- we see God's heart to share his presence. And so the starting point here is God's heart, his very character. Deep inside of who God is, we see God's heart to share his presence. So any conversation about who God is has to begin with the, with the Bible and what God says about himself. We can't start with our ideas or our opinions. We have to start with what does the Bible say about who God is and what his purposes are. So talking about God's presence, we're starting off with how the Bible reveals that he has a heart where he chooses to, where he wants to, he desires to share his presence. So if you go to page one in the Bible, chapter one, We'll start with verse 2 of Genesis, so very beginning. It says, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this language is so profound. It says that there was no form, and it was void, and there was darkness. And in the middle of this, with this language of describing this uncreated world as chaos, the Spirit of God is hovering and then brings order and brings life and light. And so out of despair and nothingness and disorder, what you have is God's Spirit, God himself, his personal presence. So God is right there, and he is bringing goodness and light and hope. And so you see in the very beginning, God's personal presence at creation. So in chapter 1 of Genesis, the word for God, in in English you read the word God, the word in the original Hebrew is Elohim. 
And now that word refers to like the supreme God, the God above all other gods, the one true God, the exalted, elevated God, the creator. And so when, whenever you see the word God in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word is Elohim. Now, when you get to chapter 2, you just turn the page in the Bible. Now you have a new description for God. If you look at chapter 2, verse 4, you see God's personal name. It says, these are the, are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that, now it says, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So now that the word Lord, that's the first time in the Bible that you see the word Lord. And so this is a different word. The word Lord in the original only had four letters. Hebrew did not have any vowels early on. Those were added far later. And the, the English equivalent would be Y, H, W, or V, and H. So we would pronounce that in English Yahweh. But in, in the Jews, even ancient and, and modern day today, Jews will not say Yahweh. They will not read God's personal name because it's holy and sacred. And they don't want to even mispronounce because of when God said, don't take my name in vain. They take that so seriously that, that when we sing and we use the word Yahweh to, to a Jew or even Messianic Jew, like that is at great on their soul, like it's hard for them to even hear the word Yahweh even said out loud because, because it's holy and set apart. And so instead, they would just describe these four letters as the tetragrammaton. You're like, what? It just means four letters. That's just a big theological word for four letters. And oftentimes, if you're reading in the Hebrew and you get to the, the word Yahweh, so God's personal name, Lord, you would say Adonai. Because Adonai is another word for Lord. And so that's, it, it's understood to be a more respectful way. So I'm not saying that you're wrong to say Yahweh, but I am giving you some context on how a lot of people, especially the Jews, that's how they approach this. And so when you, when you get to the word LORD, and when you see that with all caps in the Bible, that is God's personal name, Adonai, or Yahweh. This is describing a personal God. And so you have two names for God in Genesis 1 and 2, God, Elohim, LORD, Yahweh, personal. And this is very important. Because these two names for God are describing the character of God. It gives us some insight into the heart of God, of what God is like. And so when, when you talk about the word Elohim, you're talking about God as being transcendent. And so the word transcendent is kind of a big word. We're talking about the transcendence of God. This is just an attribute that's describing God as being separate from creation, God being far above and beyond. So he is beyond us. He is other than his creation. He is set apart. He is holy. He is transcendent. So he transcends our, our created existence. It refers to God being self-existent, that no one and nothing created God. God is independent and autonomous, 
that God is not dependent upon anyone or anything else. He is completely self-sufficient, eternal, infinite, sovereign. There's a lot that we could say to describe the transcendence of God, but I think you get the idea that it's a God who is other and separate and creator and big and far and worthy of worship. That's what God refers to. But then when you read Lord, that describes God's imminence. So the other day I was at a friend's house and we were gonna have dinner and I just asked a very innocent question because they were talking about going outside in the heat and I had to get sweaty and I was like, oh, so is dinner imminent? And, and I got harassed. They were like, who says imminent? And I'm like, I do. Imminent means close. Is dinner around the corner? Are we going to eat dinner soon? You know, for people who don't speak English very well. Is, is dinner imminent? Is it close by? Are we going to eat anytime in the next five minutes? So we're talking about God being imminent. The imminence of God means that he is near, that he is close by, that he's not far off, that he is here and near and personal and close by. He is the God who freely draws near, the God who wants to come close, the God who, who chooses to be known personally. And so sometimes we'll We'll talk about how, I mean, I, I don't do this, but people that follow like movie stars and celebrities and watch those TV shows and care about the gossip and they feel like they know them, like, like they're friends. It's like, dude, they don't, <laughs> they don't know you. Like they live in Hollywood, but, but you can feel like you know them because you have some information about them and you, you, you enjoy their presence on the TV screen and you can talk like you know them, but you don't know them. You just know about them. You know them from a distance, but you've never actually met those movie stars. You don't know them. You have information about them, but that doesn't mean you have an actual relationship with them. You see, God is not just out there far away where you can know him from a distance. God is here close. You can actually know him personally. And he shares his personal presence. Nothing and no one can force the hand of God. He doesn't need you or me. This is really important. Like understanding these names of God is so important. We should not read the Bible the way you like scan headlines on your phone. I know what you do. You, you pull up your phone and you just kind of scan either Facebook or headlines. And if it's interesting, you might click on it. And you'll scan and then go on to the next thing. This is what we do. And then we do that with this. And we'll scan it. Look for headlines. We need to stop and feed our souls from the word and understand what God is saying. Because what we're talking about here will completely change your life. You have God who is transcendent and infinite and so far off that he does not need you or me. God has no needs. God is completely fulfilled, completely satisfied, completely joyful, completely at peace. He needs nothing. He lacks nothing. He is completely just 
fine without you or me. He needs nothing from us, and yet he wants us. See, that's something that, as humans, we can barely understand because most people that we have a relationship with on some level need something from us. And yet with God, it's not like that. He freely loves you simply because he loves you, because his heart, his character is moved to love you and to share his presence with you. And you see in the very beginning, Genesis 1.28, God creates Adam and Eve, and then he blesses them. And then in chapter 2, you see God talking to Adam, enjoying a relationship. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 8, and you see God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. Everything about this in the beginning of the Bible is describing the heart of God to share his presence. He deeply loves his created beings who reflect his image. So this is truth one. God's heart to share his presence, he wants to, and he is moved to. Truth two. Well, why? So let's look at God's purpose in sharing his presence. So we know that he does, but why? Why? What is God's purpose in sharing his presence? So I talked about this a few weeks ago. I won't repeat the whole sermon. It was kind of long. Like if I've been kind of long every week, I know, I get it. Back on July 5th, I preached a sermon in the same series on the biblical thread of the people of God and how God from the very beginning to the end is gathering a people together of all nations that will worship him for eternity. So God's plan has always been to gather a people together that have great diversity. And in their diversity, they will have unity in their love for the king. And so God's goal has always been, always will be his own glory to be displayed and to be treasured. So his purpose in creating a people is so that we would reflect his glory and that we would then enjoy his glory. It's all about the glory of God. It's all about worship and us savoring the glory of God. So when you are enjoying God's glory, enjoying his presence, that is worship. That's what it is when we're enjoying the very presence of God. And so Adam and Eve in the garden were enjoying the presence of God. They were glorifying him. They were worshiping God in the process. So their purpose was being fulfilled. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3. And it's something that our minds just can't understand. Like it's inexplicable how this could happen. It's like incomprehensible. But Adam and Eve lost their taste for God. They thought, God, God, meh. Hmm. Not interested. Didn't care about his presence. They preferred the presence of evil instead because the essence of evil is desiring something, anything more than you desire God. 
enjoying the presence of anything else more than you enjoy the presence of God. And all other evil will flow from that essence of evil. So think about it, sexual sin. It is desiring the presence of this fulfillment, this release, this joy, this pleasure, enjoying that presence more than the presence of God. Same thing, if it's abuse, manipulation, or control. It's desiring control over people for your own end more than you desire the glory of God, more than you desire the presence of God in your life. If it's selfishness or greed, then you are desiring money or comforts or possessions, or status, or whatever, you're desiring that more than desiring the presence of God. If you're struggling with fear, or anxiety, or insecurity, then it's because you are not truly trusting in, resting in the presence of God. You find in yourself meditating on everything that's not right in your world. You find in yourself focused on everything that you think could happen or that's not perfect. And rather than enjoying the presence of God in the middle of that pain, you are filled with insecurity and fear and doubt because you're not enjoying the presence of God. Every single struggle that we have is going to flow from this essence of evil, which is desiring anything else more than we desire God himself. And Eden, where Adam and Eve were enjoying God, I mean, remember this, there's a word for this. There's a word for where God dwells. And the word is oftentimes called a sanctuary. The sanctuary, I know that we meet in a hotel right now, might meet in a school at some point. Who knows? God knows. For real. I mean, I do know this kind of sidebar. We're going to be here through September, and so I do know that. And so thankful for the Hilton that we can gather here through September. October, God will provide. We trust him one month at a time. And I'm good with that. I love living that way, like just trusting God for, for today's daily bread. And so I think there is something just good about not having that security it spurs the soul to trust God more. But we'll oftentimes talk about the sanctuary being where the church gathers. I'm sorry, that is not the sanctuary. The sanctuary is literally the presence of God where he lives. That is just a church building. God doesn't live in buildings. He lives where he chooses to reside. And in Genesis 1 and 2 and in 3, you see God living in Eden. What made Eden so delightful? The presence of God is what made it amazing. So that was his sanctuary. That's where he was dwelling with his people. And what did Adam do? He soiled it. He polluted the holy place of God. He polluted God's sanctuary. And God doesn't really like that. Like, he, you know, he doesn't like his dwelling place polluted. And so when they did that, they deserved judgment and condemnation for offending, for assaulting, and for rebelling against the king of glory. And when they no longer desired God's presence and polluted God's holy place, what did God do? Exile. He kicked them out of the garden. 
And we talked about this several weeks ago as well. We talked about creation and fall, how even that was an act of mercy and not allowing them to eat at the tree of life and live forever in their state. But you also see judgment here where they lost the presence of God. They were ousted out of his presence, out of the garden, out of joy, out of delight, out of purpose, out of hope. Can you feel the gravity? To have God's presence and then to spit in his face and not want it anymore. And then God, because he's holy, having to exile his people when we were created to enjoy him. That's the reason why we exist. And so you see what sin does. It corrupts. It destroys and it removes us from the presence of God. But praise God that he has always had a plan. And the moment that his people were exiled, he did put a cherubim. You see this in Genesis 3, verse 24. This is what says that God, he drove out the man out of the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim, this heavenly being, this angelic being, cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Out of God's presence with a cherubim to guard going back into the sanctuary of God. But God has had a plan to restore his people back into the garden, back into God's presence, back into our very purpose. So you see it in Genesis, because soon after this, if you keep reading in the story in chapter 6, you get to Noah. And in Genesis 6, God appears to Noah. And then if you keep reading, he appears to Abraham. We talked about this a few weeks ago, as a smoking fire pot and as a blazing torch. So fire and smoke, God, because those two are symbols of the very presence of God, fire and smoke. God appears to Abraham. He has his presence. And then God appears to his grandson, Jacob, where God encounters Jacob at Bethel. And Bethel was where there was this stairway from earth to heaven. And so at Bethel, Jacob sees the door into heaven and God appears. So he has the presence of God And then later also when he wrestles with God and Jacob's name is changed to Israel, he calls that place Peniel, which is seeing God face to face, what the word means. And so again, what you have is God's presence right there with Jacob. The story continues. Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name was Israel. His 12 sons become each a tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel. They're enslaved in Egypt. And then through Moses, who God appears to Moses through, again, fire. There's that same imagery again. Through a burning bush that was not consumed, God gives his presence to Moses, and then he liberates his people from captivity, and he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And that's where you have they experience the presence of God. Let me read this to you. 
This is powerful. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. I would tremble too. God is appearing with the same imagery with smoke and fire and thunder and lightning, and they go to meet God, to literally go to be in the presence of God. And if you keep reading, God tells Moses how to make a tabernacle. The tabernacle was sometimes also called the tent of meeting. It was because it was just that. It was a tent. It was actually a tent with poles and with fabric. And, and it was a traveling sanctuary because it's called that, a sanctuary. Let's read about that just briefly. Turn the pages in Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9. And let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Make me a sanctuary that I may live with my people. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And so they make this tabernacle, and, and the Holy of Holies inside, behind a curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant that had a lid on it that was made of gold. And on the very top of this tabernacle, there were two cherubim. Does that sound familiar? Where have we seen cherubim thus far in the story? Cherubim that was blocking the entrance into the presence of God. Now on this mercy seat, there are cherubim. God is through his mercy leading his people back into his presence through mercy. Verse 22, same chapter, Exodus 25, this time go down to verse 22. And there I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you, but all that I will give you in commandments for the people of Israel." You see this theme, I will meet with you. They're going to go meet God. God is going to dwell with his people and it's going to be accomplished through the mercy of God in removing the cherubim and allowing us to enter into his presence. The heart of God has always been to dwell with his people. And now we're seeing the purpose of this, which we'll see in a minute, is for the complete display of his glory through Jesus. So you keep reading in this story, and you get to the very end of Exodus chapter 40, the last paragraph, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Through all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Man, this is amazing. The same imagery of fire and smoke, cloud and fire, the very presence of God leading his people. And then the story continues later when after Joshua, when they took over the promised land, and then you had David, who was the first king. We talked about that last time. And then what you have is his son Solomon. King Solomon then builds a temple. You can read about that in 1 Kings 6 and 2 Chronicles 3 and 4. Those are parallel texts. And it describes how they build this very impressive sanctuary, this massive temple instead of the tabernacle. And then the ark was taken into the Holy of Holies in the innermost of the temple where the high priest could go in only once a year on Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood onto the mercy seat so that the people of God could be forgiven for their sins. All of this pointing to Jesus Messiah. Let me read to you what happened on the day when the temple was completed. Let's read in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 11. 1 Kings 8. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. House Lord is the temple. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This is astounding. You have once again the glory of God filling with his presence in the symbol of this cloud, filling, now living with his people, with his presence manifested now at the temple. Now, you would think that they would appreciate and recognize how incredibly privileged they were to have God's presence. You will think that God's presence transformed them. But if you read the story, you'll see that it didn't. The story is of failure and of idolatry and of rebellion and of not wanting God's presence, of desecrating the temple. I mean, it's it's unbelievable if you read through 1st, 2nd Kings and Austin Chronicles of how they did not care about God or his ways or his word or his presence. It sounds kind of like today. And what happened? If you read the story, we talked about it before, they were exiled. They lost the presence of God again and they were sent to exile into modern day Babylon or modern-day Iraq, rather, in Babylon. They were taken out as captives. The temple was destroyed. The city was burned down. And yet God was so faithful 
Because if you read in Ezra and in Nehemiah, it describes the restoration period where now Persia was ruling the world and they allowed Israel, the, the, the Jews at that point, now, as they were known, the tribe of Judah, to return back to the promised land to rebuild the temple and then through Nehemiah to rebuild the city wall to rebuild what was destroyed. And yet, if you read the story and the prophets, you see that it paled in comparison and it wasn't the same. And if you keep reading in the story, you never see the account of the glory of God filling the new temple. It's, it's eerily missing from the Bible. Yes, they had a temple. Yes, it was rebuilt. But their hearts were far from God. They needed Messiah to come to change their hearts, to enable them to once again go back into the presence of God, which is why in Ezekiel, prophets who prophesied in the exile, during the Babylon exile, Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 48 describes this promise of a future new temple. And if you read in chapter 47, it is absolutely stunning how you have this connection where you have Eden that was a garden where there was God's presence. And then you had the tabernacle that was essentially a transportable Eden where God's presence was. And you had the temple that was a picture of Eden where God's presence was. And then you see in Ezekiel 47 this promise of the future and this new Jerusalem, this new temple will have a river that will flow out of it. And out of this river flowing out of the temple, it describes gardens, trees, and fruits for all nations, and leaves that will be the healing for all the nations. And then you get to Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, God with us. And he tells the Pharisees, you can destroy me, and on three days I will resurrect. And he says that you, he will rebuild the temple. Jesus says that he is the temple. And in John 1, 14, it says that Jesus, the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt with us. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the living water where rivers of life flow out of him for the healing of the nations. Jesus is the final and better tabernacle, the final and better temple, the final and ultimate Eden. He is God with us. He leads us back into the presence of God and he sends his spirit who to this day is still hovering in the dark places and bringing life and hope and bringing us joy in the very presence of God because you saw again fire when the Spirit came upon the people of God in Acts 2. The same fire that was present with the burning bush with Moses is the same fire that led them in the wilderness, is the same fire that came down from heaven when Solomon prayed and the temple was finished. It was the same fire that was present in Acts 2 with believers, is the same 
fire that is in you if you trust in Jesus. May we burn for him. Man, I think, I think some of us have forgotten and that fire is just these few embers. Remember the joy of your salvation and go back to your first love. God's purpose has always been to live with his people and it is accomplished through Jesus of Nazareth, through the Messiah, the Son of God. And so it is all about the glory of Jesus. The purpose in him sharing his presence is that we would glorify God in his presence through Jesus. And I think sometimes as believers, we think about, well, God has saved me so that now I can live for God. We talk this way. He saved me, so I'm going to live for God. But I think a more accurate biblical description is God has saved you so that you can live with He has not just saved you so you can live for him. He has saved you so you can live with him. And anything that you do for him is going to flow from you enjoying his presence and living with him. This week in our home groups, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read you an excerpt of those verses that we'll be studying this week. For you were separated from Christ. It says that we were alienated. It says that we were strangers, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. We're brought near. God comes near, and through Jesus' work on the cross, through the once-for-all sacrifice, we have been brought So the first truth that we're seeing here is that God has a heart to share his presence. And then we're seeing the purpose of God in sharing his presence is to have a people who are redeemed, who are glorifying him, living in his presence. The question as we close here is our response. So how do we respond to this on encountering God's presence. Let me give you two thoughts on how we respond, how we can really encounter the presence of God. The first thought to ponder this week is that we're called to trust in the promised presence of God. We're called to trust in his promised presence because Jesus promised at the end of Matthew verse 28, verse, chapter 28, verse 20, right at the very end of the book of Matthew, Jesus ends by saying, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So he ends with this promise that I am with you. So he has promised us his presence, and then he sent his spirit, enabling us to have the presence of God. But maybe you're thinking, yeah, but pastor, sometimes I just don't feel it. Like, I, I, I just feel God so far away, or I just don't, I don't feel his presence 
presence. Maybe your world is dark or maybe there's depression or maybe there's other struggles and, and maybe you just feel like, man, God just doesn't feel close by. Well, it's in those moments that you trust in the promised presence that you believe the truth of the Bible rather than our subjective feelings. And the Bible says that we are made new, that we have his spirit, that we are redeemed, that we are the people of God's presence. That's who we are. We're the people of the presence of God. And so this defines us. And so what do you do if, if you're not feeling it? Well, you, you draw near to God anyway, and you read the word, and you pray, and you meditate. You spend time with him, with faith, believing that there's going to be a breakthrough and that you will once again have more of the awareness of his presence. Because here's the thing. If you're a believer, you already have God's presence all the time. The Spirit is in you. So God is with you and will never forsake you. That's the absolute truth. And so we trust in his promised presence and we keep drawing near and then we wait for a spirit to bring greater awareness because oftentimes when we talk about feeling God's presence well you already have your spirit we're talking about having a greater awareness feeling his grace and his peace feeling his joy believing that the spirit is still hovering in dark places and bringing light and life and that we are spiritual stones that God is using to build his dwelling place. And so we just keep trusting him and keep believing and keep pursuing him. And I assure you, it's only a matter of time in God's timing. And, and you know what? I don't know, but is it possible that maybe if you're having a season where God is not giving you more awareness of his presence is because he wants you to keep pursuing him harder. And then maybe at the end of that, you will have an even more overflowing awareness. And so, I mean, I don't know. I don't know why you're not feeling it, but I know that it's true that you have God's presence if you're a believer. And so keep drawing near and trust him that he will bring that in the right time. So we keep trusting in God's promise presence. And last thing that I would say is pursue God's experienced presence. And so I believe in the word that we should pursue. We're, we're, told, we're told to walk in the spirit. This is a ongoing, continual pursuing of a relationship with God through his word and through prayer in community, meditating on who he is. We need to be active. And you can't come on a Sunday and then the whole week you just check out spiritually and then expect to sense God's presence. It doesn't work that way. You have to actually pursue him intentionally. And then you'll have his manifested presence. But I do want to give one last, I don't know, like disclaimer or, or word of caution is when we're talking about God's presence, I think in particular in the worship gathering, and it's funny, but I think through music, sometimes we feel like, oh, that's God's presence. It's whenever we're together or when there's music that is being played. And that's not true. You have God's presence all the time. And it's not as though we can bring God's presence. We can't like conjure God's presence. Like we can't force that. 
what we do is we position ourselves humbly, focusing on Christ through his word and in prayer. And we receive his presence. We already have, if you're a believer, and then you receive greater awareness of that so the presence of God isn't clouded because oftentimes it's our sin that can then cloud God's presence. And so we're called to pursue his presence but not think that somehow we can force or manipulate or conjure or somehow bring it. God gives it and we receive it gracefully and thankfully. I want to read to you one last text as we close in Revelation 21. This is the end of our lives and this is where history is moving. This is where your life is going. Revelation 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. God dwelling with his people. And then in verse 22, same chapter. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives light with its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is the temple. There's no temple seen in the new Jerusalem because the presence of God is right there with Jesus, with his glory radiating. And we have a taste of that right here, right now, through his spirit, with his gathered people who experience his presence in a unique way when we gather together. May we believe in it. May we walk in it. For we are the people of God's presence.